Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Dexter Fergie, and you're listening to New Books in the History of the Social Sciences. Thank you very much for listening and for supporting our work at the New Books Network. Today I have the fortune of speaking with Orr Rosenboim about her terrific new book, Emergence of Globalism, Visions of World Order in Britain and the United States, 1939-1950. to It was published this year by Princeton University Press. Rosenboim is a junior research fellow at the University of Cambridge, Her book is a welcome contribution to the intellectual history of international thought. Rather than looking at the disciplinary history of IR, Rosenboim traces the thinking of an eclectic array of public intellectuals in the middle of the 20th century, from Nicholas Spikeman to Owen Lattimore, from H.G. Wells to Frederick Hayek. Though disparate in their political leanings, all of these intellectuals perceived the world to be in crisis and thought up global solutions to address the crisis – These individuals were historically significant, she argues, because we have inherited their categories. In other words, we see the world through their concepts. My background is in both IR and history, so the book really spoke to me. But it would also be of great interest to anyone studying international history, intellectual history, political science, and really anyone wanting to critically reflect on the language we use in our discussions of global politics. I hope you enjoy the interview as much as I did. I'm here with Orr Rosenboim to discuss her new book, The Emergence of Globalism, Visions of World Order in Britain and the United States, 1939 to 1950. Welcome to the show, Orr, and uh, the book was a real pleasure to read. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for the invite. Absolutely. To start off the show, can you tell listeners what brought you to history and specifically to intellectual history? Yes, so this has been a long trip for me uh, that started in uh, Bologna in Italy, where I did my undergrads. Um, It was uh, a course in contemporary history, which focused on the 20th century. And uh, I was really uh, gripped by um, the course in the history of political thought by the Italian uh, philosopher Carlo Galli. And he introduced me to that field. Um, And then I started off thinking about cosmopolitanism. Uh, It was uh, back in 2009, so just before um, the crisis of migrants became important in Italy. Um, But the themes that uh, concerned me were already related to these topics. Uh, Then I moved to Oxford and started uh, working on the history of empire um, and started thinking more concretely about how in the 20th century ideas about cosmopolitanism and imperialism Um, were interconnected. And uh, I worked a lot in the interwar period, which uh, in British history provides a fertile ground for thinking about internationalism uh, and the, uh, let's say, decline of the British Empire. Uh, So this was the intellectual trajectory that brought me eventually to, um, to the book project that started off as my as my PhD thesis. Um, so I was really interested in intellectual history because it seemed to me that um, in contemporary political discourse, we use a lot of categories, but not necessarily, we're not necessarily aware of their um, full meaning. And so I think intellectual historians can help us uh, understand the genealogy of the terms that we use so frequently. Excellent. Thank you for that. Um, so uh, uh, to begin... Um, The book is an intellectual history of globalism. It sets out to tell the story of how several American, British, and emigre scholars from 1939 to 1950 experienced a crisis in the world order and obsessed with theorizing and pursuing alternatives. Globalism did not, as you write, did not signify the abandonment of all other constituent elements of politics, um, states, empires, federations, non-state communities, and supranational organizations were reimagined and redefined, but not necessarily abolished, before they could acquire a new place in the modern global world. Um, so you write that one objective of the, of the book is to outline the competing meanings of the global as a political space in mid-century thought. 
for the people that you follow, um, the global political space was both geographic and conceptual. Um, so uh, can you just tell listeners a little bit about what you envisioned uh, when you were writing this book? And also, uh, what was the process? Because this, this was originally a PhD thesis. What was the process of turning it into a book like? Yes. So um, first of all, my project started in the archives. So I looked at thinkers who during the 1940s uh, were thinking about world order. And what I discovered was that many of them referred to uh, the uh, global space of politics, if you want, or um, the world as a whole, as a united um, kind of planetary uh, space, uh, as the relevant um, measurement of politics after the war. And so a lot of them were thinking about how to adapt politics to this um, new conception that defined life in the 1940s for them. Uh, so they were thinking a lot about interconnectedness, about technology, about communication, and all of these factors created for them this condition of the global um, and the rise of the global uh, space. And so, as you said, the, um, I was interested in understanding the relations between this um, geographical conception of the globe and its political and conceptual implications. And what I discovered is that uh, in the 40s, there was this rising concern with trying to provide a political response to this uh, condition of the global, uh, to this condition of globalism that today maybe some of us would call globalization. Um, mm. But what was important for them was really finding the political response to that. So it wasn't really just an economic or technological phenomenon. Um, and so this was really the the initial concern that I or interest that I had. I was curious to see uh, the political responses that they found to um, to this uh, perception of globalism that was so important for them. Uh, and it resonated in a sense with concerns that I felt we have in our world today. However, we often talk about globalism and globalization in uh, financial or economic or technological sense and not really in a political sense. Uh, and then uh, afterwards, this um, this became my PhD thesis, uh, which focused around a series of conversations that these intellectuals had uh, between them uh, about different aspects of this global political condition. Uh, so they attacked this problem from uh, various points of view. So, for example, from the point of view of the nation state or from uh, the point of view of geopolitics and empire or from um, themes around economics and federalism or from a religious viewpoint. And so all of these perceptions seem to me to offer, um, uh, as you said, the competing visions of globalism. Um, and this, the PhD project was completed in, um, completed in 2014. Uh, and so afterwards, I, I spent uh, the last few years uh, transforming it into a book, uh, which is a slightly different project, as, as you may know, uh, because uh, the book uh, is really um, aiming at reaching out to audience beyond uh, academia and to trying to uh, address questions that are important not only for scholars, but also for um, people out there, members of the public concerned with uh, world politics today as well, and with the um, genealogy of the concepts that we use for understanding politics now. Perfect. Thank you for that answer. Um, so uh, your book offers uh, a really interesting periodization. Um, so you tell the story of uh, these conversations about globalism that uh, take place between uh, 1939 and 1950, and uh, you don't um, uh, break up the narrative uh, that much between the Second World War and the beginning of the Cold War or the, um, the dropping of the first atomic bomb. So can you say something a little bit about your timeline and, um, and specifically why did globalism emerge in this period? Yes, so I decided to present the the decade of the forties as um, as a coherent or at least a um, 
a period that was characterized by a certain mode of thinking. And I don't really use 45 as a decisive breaking point uh, because a lot of the thinkers that I looked at uh, considered the dropping of the atomic bomb as uh, an enhancement uh, of their previous ideas rather than a decisive turning point. So for them, uh, the atomic bomb just rendered their previous concern more urgent. Uh, but it didn't necessarily create a whole new set of ideas that had to be addressed. Um, and so I think that by presenting the decade as a longer period in which ideas evolved and developed makes more sense um, of the way that uh, ideas about world order were really shaped in the 40s. Because we need to remember that from 1940, uh, Americans were already concerned with planning the re uh, recovery of Europe planning world order and re redefining the U.S. place in it. So these things were not um, were not really uh, post-war um, matters. These were concerns that were already relevant for the Americans and also for the British during the war. And so um, the wartime was already um, a period of uh, very intense uh, theorizing and thinking about what would happen after the war. And as for the end of this period, um, today when we look backwards, it's easy to see that um, really soon after the end of the war, um, the origins of the Cold War started to appear. And many um, hopes that were perhaps for uh, collaboration between the U.S. and Russia were not um, were not. Uh, given any concrete uh, historical realization. However, when people lived the 40s, they didn't necessarily see that. Some of them, uh, very few of them actually foresaw uh, the Cold War as it happened. And one of them is Raymond Aron. But many of the others were in a, in a way taken uh, by the Cold War um, by surprise. So it was not, it was not for them um, an inevitable outcome of the, uh, of the decade. And so I really put uh, the end of that story of the window of opportunity of the globalism uh, as a way of thinking about world affairs in 1950, because it was the Korean War that for many signified the end of that um, opportunity to change. So um, some of them also saw, for example, in 1947, um, coup in uh, Czechoslovakia as a decisive moment, but uh, these things were a bit more uh, flexible. And so I think that by thinking about the 40s as, as a long decade in which um, the war, the Second World War was just one major event, but it did not necessarily um, uh, condition all of the theorizing that happened, um, makes more sense of what really was going on then. Perfect. Can you uh, say a little bit more about why uh, the Korean War signified uh, a closing of uh, alternatives to the, the Cold War? Um, I think that for many people who are based in the U.S., um, a bit less so for the British, but for the Americans and the emigrants who were there, um, the Korean War signified um, a resumed uh, aggressive militant campaign uh, in which the U.S. and Russia were on the opposite sides. And so after uh, the wartime alliance between Russia and um, Soviet Russia and the U.S., um, this was really the first time that formally uh, the U.S. and uh, Soviet Union were um, on the other, on, on opposite uh, sides. And so this really meant, I think, uh, that the opposition between these two great powers was not only diplomatic or ideological, but it could also have a military aspect. And in that sense, um, this brought an end to any uh, thoughts about uh, political cooperation between them in the context of um, globalist plannings of world order. So I think this was the concreteness of violence really brought hmm. an end to these ideas. Okay, so uh, we'll dive into the book now. And uh, the book is, uh, uh, the book's chapters are uh, extremely rich and filled with uh, many really interesting points and sub-arguments. Um, so I'm not certain we'll cover absolutely everything, um, but uh, we'll give it a go. Um, so in chapter two, called Reimagining the State in a Global Space, uh, you follow three different intellectuals, uh, Raymond Aron, 
David Mitrani and E.H. Carr, as each of them identified novel aspects of the world system that fundamentally changed the power and utility of the nation-state. Uh, can you say a little bit about these intellectuals, uh, what their critiques of the nation-state were, and what they saw as uh, an alternative? So um, I chose these three because all of them were concerned with um, what would be the future of the nation state in the global era, but they were not uh, necessarily in favor of the abolition of the state. And so they um, they were not federalists in that sense, where they did not envisage uh, an order in which the states would be replaced by completely different political unity. And so I was interested in seeing how each of them imagined um, the future of the state that would have to be remeasured and redefined according to these conditions that were um, set by the new rise of globalism. Uh, and I, I think Ramon Aron is uh, an evident um, uh, he, he's, a, he's a great example of uh, thinking about the state and uh, having serious doubts about what kind of future France could have uh, beyond its own uh, borders. Because one of the main ideas that Aron developed in his um, uh, stay in London during the war, because he, he had to uh, leave France after uh, the armistice, he, he developed this understanding that uh, France could not really think of its future as a as a nation state without considering the global implications of its political existence. Um, and so he developed um, various uh, strategies for addressing this problem. Um, and in this sense, he's a bit difficult to pin down because at a certain point, he thought that France should reinforce its European connections. On another set of uh, articles, he advocated for closer Atlantic connections with the United States. Uh, in a different angle, he thought that France should be um, closer to, to Germany uh, rather than to all of Europe. And so there are these various um, attempts to think about France. But what really matters for me is uh, the use he makes of the idea of political myth. And so he tries to create um, this bridge between the nation state and the global sphere of politics using the idea of the myth as uh, a way to educate and to share with uh, people um, the political obligations that they have in the state. And so he suggested that similarly as France imagined itself as uh, created a myth of a nation state, it should create a similar myth to imagine itself within a European community. Uh, and this myth is, is, a, is like political storytelling. It's the way that uh, France is presented to its citizens and uh, to the world as a whole. Um, and I think this is really interesting nowadays also when we see states trying to uh, present themselves to the world as um, as a certain, uh, not really as in through an ideology, but through a certain conception of what the state is standing for. What are the real uh, values that are trying to uh, be advanced in that system? And this stands in concrete uh, opposition to the way that David Mitrani imagined uh, the state in the global order. So for him, the idea of a myth is too much connected to uh, the dangerous uh, political ideologies that brought about the uh, Second World War. And so his um, uh, career basically was oriented towards uh, the attempt to uh, find a way to save the state, but also uh, prevent ideologies from degenerating into a war. Uh, and nationalism was for him one of these dangerous ideologies. And so he set up a completely different solution to Aron. So it was not about storytelling at all, but about functions. So he tried to separate the ethos of the state from the functions that the states are trying to com uh, uh, to um, uh, address in, in uh, everyday life. And so he suggested that the global conditions of life that the book is, is talking about uh, require that some of the functions of the state would be um, would be uh, transformed uh, and uh, transferred to a different dimension of politics that could be supranational organizations or regional organizations. And in a sense, this set the ground for thinking about the European Union. So his idea of functionalism was very influential um, in setting up the kind of uh, economic agreements that were uh, the nucleus of the European Union.
So I try to compare in this chapter these two visions of how the nation state can survive in a global order. And then I used uh, the ideas of E.H. Carr to show that um, the, the differences between Mitterrani and Aron were not simply differences based on uh, practical solutions. So it was not just policy, but it was really um, the differences were grounded in their different conceptions of politics, uh, which for Aron was uh, based necessarily on conflict. And uh, like E.H. Carr, he had a very realist idea of what politics was about. Mm. Uh, and he thought that conflict could not be uh, avoided, even in we, even if we construct this world order that would be global and collaborative and so on, conflict would always be there, and so a political myth could help to reduce it. Um, but E.H. Carr helped to think uh, about the the limits of um, the non-political approach of Mitterrandi, uh, that was uh, E.H. Carr was similarly supportive of Mitterrandi's idea of functionalism, but he doubted that it would ever be possible to reduce the passions and the tensions that are part of political life. Excellent. Uh, so we'll move on to the next chapter. And uh, something that you do like throughout the book that uh, I, I think is uh, really wonderful is how you bring together this eclectic assortment of intellectuals, uh, many of whom you don't necessarily think about together, but um, they were all sort of talking about uh, similar objects. Um, so in this chapter, chapter three, um, uh, geopolitics and regional order, um, it really comes out um, because uh, you trace uh, the the discussion of regions and uh, world order through the geopolitical thinking of uh, Nicholas Spickman and Owen Lattimore. And uh, I, I found it really interesting because I had personally o always really thought about Owen Lattimore in the context of the McCarthyist witch hunts, and I had kind of overlooked his uh, intellectual contributions. Um, so I really enjoyed uh, thinking about that. So can you Tell listeners about this story of geopolitics, its uh, relationship to empire, which I found really interesting in this chapter, and what these scholars had to say about world order. Yes, so I'm very glad that you say that about Latimore, first of all, because um, I, I read across his writings when I did my uh, master's in Oxford, and especially on the notion of the frontier, which uh, seemed to me very elusive but interesting. And uh, I, I learned afterwards that uh, indeed he was um, uh, excluded from uh, the history of political thought, if you want, in the U.S. because of uh, his, uh, uh, the campaign that McCarthy had set against him. Um, and this is really, I think, a great uh, pity because he had very interesting ideas and also he was very, uh, a very fascinating person. So I was very uh, happy to be able to read his uh, personal letters as well in the archive and discover his personality. But what matters about him in the context of, uh, of the chapter is that he was one of the first to address notions of geopolitics uh, beyond the West and to try to create... Uh, a geopolitical world order in which the U.S. would retain importance, but uh, China would be given uh, an equal standing. And so he was an expert on China and Mongolia. And uh, in his writings about geopolitics, which were influenced by, by previous uh, generations of geopoliticians, and I'll talk about it in a minute, uh, he tried to challenge uh, many of the categories of thought in geopolitics, like the land and sea dichotomy or the frontier, and to suggest that um, these are um, perhaps tools of imperial domination. And if we want to think of a new global world after the war, we need to resist these. And if we do succeed in resisting this, we'll see that actually Asia can become uh, a new block of freedom, a new regional order where democracy could emerge as a, as a powerful alternative to both capitalism and collectivism, as he called it. So both the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Uh, so I was interested in seeing uh, today we're very uh, accustomed to people foreseeing the rise of China uh, as a rising power uh, and uh, a global democracy and so on. Uh, I mean, democracy perhaps up to a certain point. But I was interested in seeing why in the 1940s he thought this would be the case. 
Um, and then I, uh, I had to really position his thought within the context of geopolitics in the United States at the time to understand why Latimore was making these arguments. And um, in the U.S., geopolitics was not um, necessarily a, a major uh, field because many of the people who were concerned with these themes, with the relations between geography and politics, uh, were afraid of being associated with the German geopolitik, the kind of um, uh, expansionist uh, ideology that helped uh, the Nazi regime to justify its uh, military aggressiveness. And so um, in the U.S. you have these various scholars like Azza Bauman um, and, um, uh, and uh, others as well who, who were uh, like Nicholas Spikeman, uh, who were trying to provide geopolitical uh, analysis without necessarily defining it as, as geopolitics. Uh, and so they have uh, created, uh, Azar Bauman created around him uh, a set of, uh, a group of scholars uh, like Hans Weigert uh, and, uh, and Stephenson who were um, producing really uh, groundbreaking uh, geopolitical studies. And in that context, Spikeman emerged as this kind of great strategist who was trying to imagine the future of uh, the world in geopolitical terms. And he imagined this tripolar order in which the United States would be one power pool, uh, Soviet Russia another, and uh, Britain, uh, the British Empire, would be the third power pool. And this contrasted really nicely with uh, what Owen Latimore proposed. So for him, the world would also be a tripolar system, but it would be based on um, the United States, Soviet Russia and China. So no longer Europe. He turns away from Europe and focuses on Asia as this uh, new region of democracy uh, that for him could transform the world. Um, and so for me, this uh, contrast was very interesting because it, no, it was not only about who would be the third power pool, but it was also about what kind of role the United States could play in that transformation. So because for Spikeman, this, uh, the idea that um, the tripolar order uh, would be important in the post-World War uh, depended on um, the permanence of empire. For him, uh, the British Empire and the United States, which would be a new kind of empire, uh, could only um, resist the USSR and its rise to global dominance. So there was an attempt here to stop uh, the power of evil, if you want. Um, while for uh, Latimore, geopolitics was all about liberation. So for him, the rise of Asia would mean the end of empire uh, and the rise of a new kind of democracy that would be defined in uh, grassroots terms. Um, and so for me, this was interesting because it showed that geopolitics was a multifaceted uh, discipline in the United States in the 40s. A lot of it was lost afterwards because um, after the 40s, um, the study of international relations in the U.S. turned away from geopolitics towards other concerns. And perhaps also in the Cold War, these uh, ideas were no longer um, appealing to scholars in the U.S. who had other concerns. And so uh, it seems to me that the 40s really uh, distill this moment when geopolitics was important for explaining the relations between the global and the local uh, level of politics. Excellent. Uh, the, the next two chapters uh, I found really also interesting. I mean, I found the whole book interesting, um, <laughs> but uh, uh, the next two chapters I found really interesting, uh, particularly as uh, an Americanist, uh, largely ignorant of uh, the Federal Union. So it was wonderful to, to, to learn about it and, and also see all these really interesting intellectuals really thinking about the world and uh, the world order. So uh, you write that global so the Federal Union is this British organization that really tries to promote this global democratic federalism. And you write that it begins as a way to preserve the imperial order, but then it eventually morphs into uh, a tool of uh, socioeconomic reform. Um, so can you please tell listeners about the Federal Union, the, some of its individuals, like maybe uh, William Beveridge or uh, Barbara Wooten, and what they meant when they said democratic federalism, and also what were some of the conceptual and geographic boundaries of their uh, theories and ideas of democratic federalism? 
Right, so um, what I'm trying to do in these two chapters is first of all to show that Federal Union as a political organization that had massive success when it was funded in uh, 38 in, in, uh, in London, um, it, uh, it did not come out of the blue. Uh, so the idea of a federation was already there before Federal Union. However, what's important about Federal Union is that it managed, it managed to transform this idea, as you said, from the imperial realm into uh, a democratic proposal for socioeconomic welfare. And how did that come about? So essentially this uh, organization was funded in 38 when three uh, oxbridge graduates sat in a in a pub in london as the as the legend goes uh, and they thought that uh, soon war would uh, take over europe and so um, something must be done to prevent that and the solution was for them the uh, union of britain uh, and any other democratic state that would uh, would like to join that federation to resist the um, uh, the the threat of war that came from from Germany, uh, and so it it started off as this call for uh, unity. Uh, but this is the less interesting aspect uh, in my view, because what I was interested in uh, is to understand what kind of federation these people were calling for and what kind of political ideas were standing behind that. And so you see that initially their organization invited also uh, people like Lionel Curtis to participate in the in the discussions and in the meetings. And Lionel Curtis is quite well known uh, to British historians because he's um, uh, an Oxford scholar who uh, campaigned since the um, early uh, 20th century in favor of transforming the British Empire into a federation in which the um, dominions, as they used to be called, and some of the colonies would become uh, active participants in a, in a commonwealth of nations, as he called it. And his was really a, a almost a theological messianic idea of uh, federal polity in which the spirit of Britain would uh, inspire democracy in all these other places of the world, from Australia to Canada to South Africa, um, Ireland, etc. And so um, this was his idea that, um, well, was not really uh, given any practical policymaking uh, aspect, but it did gain a lot of support in certain circles. And uh, Lionel Curtis was also one of the founders of the Chatham House, which is an important uh, international relations think tank in London that provided a lot of policy guidance um, and still does. And so he did have a, a listening ear in the establishment. However, as it happened, and as I try to show in, this, uh, in these two chapters, uh, his ideas were not really well received in federal union because they seemed antiquated. Um, they seemed uh, a relic of the past and federal union did not really want to perpetuate empire. Actually, in many of their publications, they were uh, talking against empire, against the legacy of colonialism and in favor of creating a system where colonies uh, could participate actively. As, as equal members rather than as um, um, lower or less important parts of the federation. And so uh, I think what really matters were, was that federal union managed to attract a group of economists uh, who were um, really at the cutting edge of research in economics in London at the time. And this included William Beveridge uh, from the LSE, who then moved to Oxford, uh, Lionel Robbins, uh, Barbara Wooten, who was one of the first uh, women economists, and then she moved to sociology, but she's a groundbreaking women thinker in uh, Britain at the time, uh, and Friedrich Hayek, who soon afterwards moved to uh, Chicago and became famous. But back in the day in uh, the LSE, he was not really well known. Um, so this was uh, before he published The Road to uh, Serfdom as well. Uh, and so the discussions in federal union revolved around what kind of federal democracy they should offer. And what's interesting for me is that the debate between Wooten and Hayek revolved around the idea of planning and welfare and what kind of political and economic principles could provide the best uh, solution for a prosperous uh, federation. And so they thought that um, both of them agreed that 
uh, a federation would provide better conditions to achieve wealth, to uh, achieve growth, to improve the living conditions of people um, beyond the boundaries of the nation state. Uh, however, they had completely different ideas of how this should be done. Uh, and, and there were intense uh, discussions about that in federal union. And so um, succinctly, Hayek uh, thought that the federation would help to reduce the power of the state and to create a minimalist political organization where individuals would uh, be free to pursue their own uh, ambitions, uh, economic ambitions in the free market. And so federations was uh, federation was uh, useful for breaking the um, borders of the nation states and creating a free space where people and goods could could circulate without limits. Uh, and so he was obviously against protectionism and against planning. Um, although he agreed that a degree of social planning could be implemented on a on a local level by a community. Uh, so, for example, in a little village, they could decide that they would have free housing if they wanted to. So that was not uh, that was not uh, um, to be excluded in his view. Um, later on, he uh, criticized even this kind of planning. Um, Barbara Wooten, on the other hand, had a much more expansive idea of what the federation should do. So, for her, a federation was. Um, useful because it created a larger geopolitical space for planning. She thought that by pulling together resources and manpower and um, um, economic uh, goods and in industries, uh, it was possible to plan better economies and to create better um, and more prosperous societies. And so the Federation would basically uh, prevent the limitations that states have uh, because they lack some resources or because they don't have cheap manpower and so on. And they would create a more easy uh, way of um, uh, setting up the conditions for growth. And so they, uh, Wooten and Hayek, really um, show the two extreme, extremely different perceptions of what a democratic federation could be. And what's interesting, and I try to reflect on that in the chapter as well, is that both of them were inspired in a sense by Lionel Robbins, who uh, was also a London-based economist at the LSE. And he had started to write about these issues of uh, federalism and economics back in uh, 37. And uh, then for him, this was a, an idea that uh, could help to prevent war, naturally, but also to bring um, greater prospect, um, prospect of growth on, on the economic level. Uh, and so both Hayek and Wooten were inspired by Robbins, but they took his ideas to completely different directions. And, um, and so at Federal Union, they provided the platform for discussion on all of these ideas. And I think this is uh, really the interesting uh, contribution of this uh, organization rather than perhaps its actual policy achievements. Um, what happened is that uh, by uh, during the war, um, all of these people were uh, recruited for war service. And so they eventually abandoned um, they abandoned the organization, which uh, still continues to exist if you want to sign up um, okay. and yeah, in London. And so uh, the story is really about how they were uh, planning the post-war era, but it doesn't uh, it's impossible to follow through because uh, many of these people have left it before the war had ended. Um, however, I think they really give us some interesting reflections on the problems of um, the economy of the European Union today and the kind of political challenges that this aspect of federation uh, brings. Okay, perfect. Yeah, so I mean, I, I really hope the uh, the current iteration of the Federal Union isn't trying to preserve empire, um, but uh, <laughs> it's nice to know that yeah. they're still around. Um, so uh, <laughs> you move on to another globalist project, this one located in the United States in uh, Chapter 6. And this is the attempt to draft a world constitution at the University of Chicago. And it was a group of intellectuals uh, led namely by Robert Hutchins uh, who were responding, responding to this crisis of the world order and as well as the atomic bomb and wanted to draft a constitution to, to, to restore order, to create a new order. 
And uh, you, you at one point say Mark Mazower, who uh, dismisses this in hilarious prose, he dismisses it as a staggeringly implausible document. Um, but you show that this document and the process in creating this document was actually very historically significant, um, especially as it relates to, or as they relate to globalism. So, what did these intellectuals envision, and um, did they did they truly believe that this constitution would change the world? So, um, yes, the, the book, in the context of the book, it, um, the chapters develop on, uh, on the basis of scale. And so now we arrive at the, the world scale from the state to the region, the empire, and now finally the world. And uh, as you said, uh, this project of the World Constitution draft was uh, really laughed at by later historians, so ridiculed for um, the high degree of uh, impracticality, if I uh, may use uh, not as extreme tone as... uh, (laughs) But um, in a sense, I think... Well, as far this is obviously correct because it was not really put in practice. But I think this is a wrong approach because what's interesting about this committee is not really the final draft they were able to produce, but rather um, the discussions that they had about what it means uh, to think about world order in global terms and why they thought their constitution would be a solution to the world's problems. And just to um, expand on what you said, so this uh, constitution committee included some 15 of the leading scholars um, of the University of Chicago and other universities in the States. And these people dedicated uh, two years of their lives um, on uh, frequent um, weekend-long meetings to think very hard about these these topics, so it was not something they did offhand, mm-hmm. and it was not. Um, and it's it's difficult to imagine nowadays a group of leading Harvard or Chicago intellectuals who would do such a project. Um, so some of them were quite famous, including at the time at least, including uh, Richard McKeon, the philosopher Mortimer Adler, um, the Catholic philosopher. Uh, Charles Howard McEwen from Harvard, James Landis, uh, Robert Redfield, Rexford Tugwell, uh, Reynold Niebuhr at a certain point was part of that group, um, Wilbur Katz and William Hawking. So these were um, quite influential and leading intellectuals. Now, why did they want to do that? Uh, essentially, they thought that the war and especially the, the atomic bomb created not only a threat of destruction, uh, but also an opportunity, an opportunity to change uh, politics uh, at the root. And they thought that uh, the solution to that would have to be based on law. And in that sense, they uh, decided to write this constitution. Uh, And what's interesting is that the discussions around the constitution um, really revolved around uh, two main approaches. So the one was the expansive uh, maximalist approach to the constitution that was um, advanced by um, uh, Giuseppe Borghese, who was um, an anti-fascist Italian literary critic, and he was uh, married to the daughter of Thomas Mann, uh, who was also part of that group. Hmm. Uh, and so he uh, he thought that uh, it was time to really um, put in the democratic ethos in the world, uh, and at the same time also create this constitution that would accept pluralism and bring about justice. Um, to uh, the world as a whole. Uh, because I think many of these intellectuals who were involved in that project, and is, including him, were at the time already beyond conscription age. Uh, they couldn't really participate in the world, in the war effort. Uh, and they were kind of, you know, spending the time in the uh, campus um, looking at what was going on in the battlefield far away and feeling a bit perhaps uh, helpless. And so they decided to dedicate themselves to finding an intellectual solution for that uh, challenge of war. Uh, And uh, what's interesting, I think, is the way that they theorize some key ideas that today are very important for um, political philosophers and uh, global constitutionalists, like the problem of human rights, the problem of sovereignty uh, as a united or 
divided concept, whether it's possible to share sovereignty uh, with the state and with supranational organizations. Um, and the problem of representation, how it is possible to find a way to represent the political will of people around the world um, without uh, recreating the same kind of uh, national tensions that brought to the war. Um, and so they, they really um, created um, a, document, a vast documentation that can be found today in the University of Chicago on the problems that arise from these issues. And um, what's new here as well is uh, a degree of concern with a non-Western world. So unlike the previous chapters here, there is really a, a, an awareness of their own bias as Westerners and a need to address the will and the, um, let's say, uh, original and independent political uh, hopes of the known of the non-Western world after the war. And so many of them thought that it would be good to um, um, include in that project also non-Western uh, representatives. Uh, but this was uh, logistically impossible. And so what they did was to bring in uh, to the research group copies of the constitutions of many uh, countries that were um, liberated from the imperial yoke and were writing their constitutions at the time. And that included uh, Ceylon and um, Israel, uh, as well as, uh, well, Japan was not colonial, but it still uh, saw itself as a new um, democratic uh, power in the region. And so they were trying to learn from other people's experience as well. Um, however, uh, at the end, um, the, the battle between the maximalist uh, vision of the constitution that Borges advanced, as I suggested, and the more minimalist idea of the constitution that was advanced by uh, Richard McKeon, who was a philosopher in Chicago and hoped to create a very um, vague and inclusive uh, document that would be similar perhaps to the Declaration uh, of uh, Human, Universal Declaration of Human Rights that actually was published afterwards. Um, this clash between the opinions um, was uh, not doing the committee very good, and uh, they ended up adopting the more um, uh, ambitious plan. However, this uh, brought uh, to them um, mixed reactions. So they were, on the one hand, uh, celebrated for their achievement as an intellectual uh, aim, but also were uh, attacked for the lack of uh, political practicality. Uh, and uh, important people reacted to that constitution, including the um, jurist Hans Kelsen, who wrote very interesting comments on that. Um, but I think that uh, in the book, I try to explain why they chose that ambitious project that they knew really deep inside that could not be realized. And um, it seems to me that the reason was the uh, rejection of the nuclear arms control plan uh, by uh, the Soviet Union uh, in uh, 47. And so... Um, uh, this was a major event at the time, although nowadays we're not really, uh, we don't really consider that as a mass massive turning point. But what happened was that the United States prepared this plan um, for um, international control of nuclear weapons, uh, and it was advanced by uh, both scientists and politicians. However, um, it was rejected in the UN by the Russian uh, representatives. And so uh, this uh, showed to the committee members, the constitutionalists, that there could be no agreement with Russia on international matters. And so they suggested that their constitution would remain uh, an intellectual product. It could not be implemented at the time. Um, and, and in that sense, uh, obviously, the... Uh, um, opponents or the later historians as well uh, were right because the constitution did not have uh, concrete realization. However, um, I think it left a mark and people like uh, Richard McKeon, but also Jacques Maritain, who read it and uh, were inspired by it, um, considered it as an encouragement for thinking about human rights as a, as a global entitlement. Uh, and so uh, I'm interested in this constitution really as a um, 
as a stone on the way for uh, global thinking, uh, not necessarily as a political project that we should realize. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, so the, the, the next chapter, uh, Perceptions of Science and Global Order, looks at a group of uh, intellectuals who perceived morality and science to be global phenomena, that the, uh, the post-war global order would intertwine scientific universalism and uh, moral universalism. Uh, but as you uh, showed, this had the effect of actually restricting diversity within the global order. So we'll unfortunately have to take chapter, this chapter and the next chapter a little bit more briefly uh, so that we have time to chat about the conclusion. So what in this chapter, chapter seven, do you find, did you find most interesting and would like to share with the listeners? Um, so in, these, uh, in this chapter, um, I was surprised really to see how uh, these thinkers who are so concerned with uh, the problems of science, especially in light of um, their uh, the importance they gave to liberty, how easily they reverted to ideas like faith and uh, and belief. And so uh, it helps for me to show that uh, on thinking about what really unites the world globally, we usually come to think about science and technology as something that breaks borders, but actually for these thinkers, uh, faith and belief were also, in a sense, universal. Um, and so... Uh, if we challenge this idea that faith and belief are universal and, and actually ground them in the Western experience, then perhaps similar ideas can be said about science. So in this chapter, I'm trying to challenge uh, and to see how the interaction between faith and, and science, as you said, is not really about a universal perception, but, re but more about the expansion of the West and its experience. Great. You end the science chapter with a really interesting segue and show how a lot of these thinkers grounded uh, their belief in scientific uh, universalism in Christianity. So then that leads to chapter eight, Catholicism, pluralism and global democracy. And here you trace a really, uh, I mean, maybe this shows more of my ignorance than uh, what the historiography says, but a, a seemingly forgotten strain of Catholic theology that oriented itself to the globe and to ideas of world order. So again, from this chapter, what, what are some of the uh, really interesting things that you would like to share with listeners? Right. So um, this chapter really started for me from um, the concern, uh, as you said, in the previous chapter with the universality of, of Christianity that a lot of 1940s people had. Uh, and, and naturally, uh, Catholicism is a religion that defines itself by its universality. Uh, and so um, Jacques Maritain and Luigi Sturzo, who are the uh, protagonists of this story, uh, were both exiled, however, uh, in the United States. However, both of them were trying really hard to think about the post-war uh, world in terms that would be global. And um, and what's interesting in this for me is the role of uh, democracy and pluralism in their thought. And so um, in, in this comparison, I mean, nowadays, Jacques Maritain has been revived in a way by Samuel Moyne and yeah. others as, as this thinker of human rights or perhaps a person who limits our perception of human rights through his very uh, Catholic reading of them. Um, and so uh, he left this kind of legacy that many people are unaware of. Uh, for Moyne, at least. Uh, but what I was interested in, in the comparison with uh, Sturzo, is actually to, to show the variety of Catholic thinking at the time, and to show that um, we should be more attentive than to just dismiss that as uh, kind of conservative. Uh, so Sturzo used similar uh, categories as Maritain, like human rights and the person, human person, uh, to think about um, a new world order. But for him, uh, this would have to be based on democracy. So he gave a much greater weight to the idea of democracy, as well as to uh, a degree of pluralism and diversity that had to be embraced even by the Catholics. So even if the Catholics knew in their hearts that they were right and their idea was universally true, um, they still had to support a pluralist order for uh, Maritain, for uh, Sturzo, sorry. And this idea really we don't see so much in Maritain. Um, and so I was interested in that contrast uh, to perhaps enrich our understanding of some of the uh, nuances of religious thought about globalism in that period. Great. So on to the conclusion. 
um, one thing that I was really struck by in uh, the conclusion was how you you explain how you're not only tracing globalist ideas, but you're also historicizing the mid-century role of public intellectuals. And your book actually offers a really fascinating reflection on the arrival of the global public intellectual, um, as uh, most of your intellectuals were uh, global citizens, some were emigres, and all were really oriented to the globe. So why should historians pay more attention to public intellectuals? And um, what does your book say about the changing role of the public intellectual? And a question that was kind of lingering for me at the end of the book was, who were their publics? Right. Well, these are uh, terrific questions, um, sometimes a bit difficult to, to answer. So um, initially, I was, I was just very curious to think about what kind of public role this intele- public intellectual could have. Mm. Uh, because what's interesting for me is that all of these people really saw themselves as public intellectuals, which means as scholars who had important engagement or gave important weight to their engagement with the public. And this public was not necessarily well-defined. Um, so sometimes it was just the readers of daily newspapers where they published their op-eds. Um, other times it was more specific uh, readers of magazines that were thematic about world politics or about law and so on. Um, but there was always an ambition to reach beyond academia, to reach the wider population of people who were interested, uh, but not necessarily had all the information. And so I think really the 1940s was a time when um, uh, the, the discourse for these intellectuals was not really restrained to the elite anymore. They realized that they really need to communicate with the people. And the people apparently were also interested in, in these debates. Um, and so I think that the democratization of public discourse uh, obviously did not happen uh, in one day. But I think in the 1940s, we see that pretty strongly. And this is also reflected, for example, in uh, President Roosevelt's attempt to address uh, the citizens directly through uh, radio programs. Uh, and so hmm. there was a growing, growing awareness of the need to really reach out and to really um, express, explain and express ideas in a clear way so that people could be persuaded because uh, democratic consent was increasingly important. Uh, and so this is, in a way, um, the main reason I was looking at public intellectuals, because they thought that the public was important. And so I was curious to know why. And and I think in, in the book I tried to show that all of the work was really uh, aimed at explaining to the public why they had certain ideas and justifying these ideas in a convincing way, which I think is something that perhaps is a, is a is a something something that we can take uh, today as well. Um, something that uh, scholars or people who have um, particular knowledge or particular interest in in certain aspects of life uh, could take as well today of the need to share these ideas uh, and to perhaps. Uh, confront a general public as well as the experts around us. Absolutely. I mean, that's why we do podcasts. <laughs> yeah. So I have one final question about the book, and uh, it has to do with the limits of globalism, and particularly in regards to colonies or the global south or the non-West. So what were these conceptual and geographic blind spots? Uh, and um, what does it say about globalism uh, that so many of these thinkers uh, had these blind spots? So uh, I really think the blind spots of these thinkers were huge. Um, I don't think many of them had the awareness that we have today of how big uh, their limits really are. Uh, some of them, like Owen Latimore, who thought concretely about Asia and was informed uh, of what was going on in Asia were an exception. Um, And so I think that the discourse of globalism is not, in a sense, a global discourse. Uh, It's it's a Western discourse, and uh, I'd be curious to know more about uh, whether and how uh, people in other parts of the world thought about world order at that time. Uh, And so I'm not really pretending that this can be a conclusive or a world-spanning intellectual history. This is more of a glimpse into the way that Westerners thought about 
the globe. And I think it shows very well the limits of globalism and perhaps globalization thinking that we still have today. And so, uh, for example, the 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 perception that uh, the globe can really uh, be an extension of Western civilization was still pretty strong in the 1940s. And this is a risk that today uh, all those people who are doing global history or global politics are still uh, in danger of doing. So this is something that we should be aware of uh, today as well. But uh, the 1940s thinkers were definitely uh, besieged with these problems. And um, and we should, uh, and I'm trying in the book also to flag them. Mm. Uh, so we're not, uh, this is not supposed to be uh, a, a um, kind of teleological or a celebratory account of globalism. Great. Well, thank you. So um, the final question that we always ask our guests on the show is, uh, what are you working on right now? So now we have this uh, new project about imperialism before the First World War, uh, and I look specifically at the Italian experience of liberal imperialism uh, and why Italy decided to embark on a liberal empire and how it was informed. This project was informed by Italian conceptions of world order. So I'm moving a little bit away from the Anglosphere uh, and towards the Mediterranean. Perfect. Well, I really look forward to reading it. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. And uh, hopefully we'll chat again. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. 